Today's scripture is Luke 37 or 11:37 through 12:3. It's on 870 in the church um, Bibles. <clears throat> While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with, your bur- with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves did not, do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you b- build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to the lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, nor hi- or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, dear saints of Windsor Community Church, and for those of you who are visiting for your first or second time with us, my name is Chad, I'm one of the pastors here, it's a joy to bring the word of God to you. Um, we're going to be continuing through Luke, as you heard just read, our sermon series through the book of Luke, and uh, if you would join me in a prayer, hold on before you close your eyes and bow your heads, <laughs> see that, wow, I'm just convicted by this text this morning that sometimes um, we can do these external actions, and I'm not saying that that's what I was about to do or you were about to do, but I just want to remind you really quick that we're going to pray to the triune God, and, and, and I, I've been convicted in my heart, especially sometimes as I'm up here and I'm, I'm, I'm at the beginning of a sermon, got some butterflies, and so we're going to pray, we're going to close our eyes, bow our heads, and I'm going to say a bunch of words for your hearing, and I don't know that I'm always, honestly, really thinking about the fact that I'm praying to the triune God because of what his son has done for me and the spirit that's in me. So, please join me in prayer. Father, 
Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. We are, are joyful in your presence this morning with your people, singing your praises, fellowshipping together, serving, uh, preaching and hearing your word preached for your glory, Lord. We acknowledge that you are mighty and majestic and you're high and you're lifted up. And I am humbled that, that we get to talk to you as Father because of what Christ has done and the spirit you've placed in our hearts through whom we cry, Abba, Father. We tremble at your word. We pray that you would sink it into our hearts by your spirit and that you would use me uh, as your mouthpiece. Father, I pray that you would free me from the fear of man in these moments, that you would help me not uh, seek the vainglorious praise of men or eloquence, uh, but seek to live for your glory and rightly handle your word. I pray that you'd um, cut our hearts through your word if you need to, encourage our hearts if you need to, show your people uh, the ways that, that we maybe need to repent and, and turn back to inward devotion and not just merely external actions as we seek holiness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a little story, and I want to be honest, I heard this from another pastor, so if it, if it sounds familiar to you guys, that's why I have personalized it. I've made my own creative adjustments, but it may be familiar to you. Let's say that uh, I've been telling some of my guy friends in this church that I have a really healthy, happy marriage. And the truth is, I believe I do. Okay, but that's not part of the story. She's right here. That's Audrey. Um, so I'm going around telling my friends, like, yeah, Audrey and I, we have a great marriage, healthy, happy. And, and let's say we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this week. And so I'm like, hey, guys, I'm gonna, I want you to come to my house, meet me at my house after work on Wednesday. And so after work, instead of going straight home, I go to King Supers. I buy 10 red roses, one for each year that we've been married. And instead of just letting myself into my own house, I ring the doorbell. And my, my, my guy friends from this church body are there. And I'm like, make sure you guys, you know, go on Facebook Live, YouTube Live. We need the world to see what a great husband I am. And instead of, I don't know if I said this, instead of letting myself into my own house, I ring the doorbell. And Audrey comes to the door and she goes, oh my gosh, Chad. And then, and then I pull out the 10 red roses and she's like, oh, oh my gosh, Chad. Why did you? <laughs> she knows it's our anniversary, but that's the first thing that comes to her mind. And I say, well, Audrey, it's my duty. I read the good husband, Mike, put your job. I read, I read the good husband manual, and this is what I'm supposed to do. Here you go. <laughs> is that what she's seeking? Is that the kind of love? Is that honor, Audrey? Is that the kind of love she's seeking from me? Am I exposed on Facebook Live and YouTube and all my friends? Like everyone, their jaws are down. Like Mike's just was like, what? So let's replay the scenario, okay? I don't tell my friends. I don't need my friends to know that I have a great marriage. I just go to King Supers, get the roses, come to my door. Ding dong. Audrey comes to the door. I'm alone. No friends. Pull the roses out. And she goes, oh my gosh. Chad, why did you? And I say, Audrey, I adore you. 
you are my queen. I love you. I would lay my life down for you. The, the last 10 years has been the best 10 years of my life. I would do anything for you. And in fact, I called my mom. She's coming to babysit tonight, and we're going on a hot date. I can't wait to spend time with you. Yeah. <laughs> There's no comparison, right? No comparison. We know what's supposed to come out of my heart as a husband, what she's seeking as a wife. That's the way God wants us to love him, but I'm kind of changing the metaphor to talk about holiness. In the same way, we see from the Old Testament to the New that God does not define true holiness merely by external actions, outward actions. Outward actions without inward love and devotion and a desire to glorify God are not what God is seeking from his people. Unless we think that we're off the hook regarding this passage this morning, we all need to acknowledge that there is a Pharisee inside of all of our hearts. Even as regenerate Christians, we still have some Pharisee in here. We all at times can struggle to be preoccupied with outward conformity to God's commands, doing what is right, that we fail to see the evil in our own hearts. We may do all the right things at church, have all the right answers while harboring deep bitterness and unforgiveness towards a brother or sister in this body, maybe even our spouse. We may be deeply offended at the way someone dresses at the Sunday gathering, only to gossip and speak evil about them later. We may speak about godly parenting and marriages, but not realize we're trapped in anger and impatience towards our spouses and children. And this passage in Luke is meant to teach us the kind of holiness and the way of holiness that God is seeking from his people. It's not merely an outward holiness. It's an inward holiness that flows out into our actions. It's not a holiness that's according to tradition, but it's according to God's word. And it's a holiness that doesn't fear being revealed. In other words, more simply, the main point this morning is the holiness that God is looking for starts in the heart. It's according to God's word, and it has no fear of being inside out. That'll make sense when we get there. So that's going to be the structure as well this morning. The first point will be true holiness starts within. We'll look at verses 37 through 44. The second point, true holiness is according to God's word, verses 45 through 54. And the third point, true holiness does not fear being inside out, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So last week, Tyler preached um, chapter 11, verses 14 through 36, and showed us that Jesus was making a point about who he is. His power came from God. He had the authority to speak where blessing came from. He's a greater prophet than Jonah and Solomon. He is the light. And in that passage, Jesus is arguing about his identity, to, to, it says, to the people and to the crowds. And there's some intense fellowship with them. They, they start arguing about who he is. He, they're like, your power comes from Beelzebul. And he's like, no, you guys are crazy. They start fighting a little bit. If they would just open their eyes and see what he's doing and therefore who he is, they would be better off. They just need to see him. And in our passage this morning, the heat gets turned up. Jesus has some really strong words for the Pharisees and the lawyers. We've talked a lot about Jesus' tone in the Gospel of Luke. And as we've said, often with his disciples, his tone, even if it's admonishing, even if it's strong, it's still gentle and inviting. And, and we see really intense words from Jesus from these guys this morning. Before we dive in, I think it'll be helpful for, 
our understanding to remind you guys of who the, the scribes, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers and scribes were. Lawyer and scribe are synonyms. They're the same people. Um, and also how their traditions transformed their understanding, sorry, how their traditions informed their understanding of holiness. So the, the Pharisees and the lawyers and scribes and experts in the law, they were cohorts. They were both part of the religious elite, but they didn't exercise the same office. The Pharisees were the religious leaders that enforced the legal code and the lawyers. Like Dan told us a couple weeks ago, not like lawyers that we think of, like experts in the law. They were the codifiers of the law. What came to me yesterday, it was actually helpful for me, maybe for some of you as I'm watching college football, is the Pharisees are kind of like the referees. They're out there enforcing the rules. And the lawyers and the scribes, they were like the, the NCAA commissions or the Olympic committees that write the, the rules and change the rules year to year. The lawyers were the people who built hedges around the law by encrusting it with myriads of extra regulations. This is from a commentary. Listen to this. Among the most notorious of these extra laws that were created to protect the fourth commandment, if you remember the fourth commandment, it's this, I'll read it. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. To ensure that no work was performed on the Sabbath, the Mishnah, which is a written collection of these oral traditions written by the lawyers, listed 39 classifications of labor, with each category capable of endless subdivision. For example, one of the 39 categories forbade the carrying of burdens on the Sabbath and hedged it with minute prohibitions for every occasion. This section declared that anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig was a burden. So it was permissible to carry something that weighed less than a dry fig on the Sabbath, but if one inadvertently put it down or picked it back up, he would be counted as doubling the weight and thus breaking the Sabbath. You should laugh. That's crazy. There were many other hedges, additional laws that were created in order to protect people from breaking God's law. I read somewhere this week, I couldn't find it again, but I know I read it somewhere that there was like an additional 6,000 of these extra biblical laws to protect them not breaking the biblical law. And these laws were considered equal to God's commands by the Pharisees and the lawyers. So with that in mind, now that you know that about the, the view of holiness by the Pharisees and the lawyers, let's dive into the text. The first point, true holiness starts within 37 through 44. As you heard read, Jesus gets invited to dine with a Pharisee, and we find out later in verse 45 that lawyers are there as well. So he reclines at table, it says, and apparently he doesn't obey the tradition of ceremonial hand washing. And one scholar believes, and I, I agree, that Jesus is probably intentionally abstaining from his obedience to this tradition. I think he knows exactly what he's doing and how this offense to the Pharisees would provide him with an intense teaching moment. Men, you've seen Braveheart, and they ask him in one battle scene, like, what he's going to go do. What are you going to do when he's going to go talk to the, to the English? And he says, I'm going to pick a fight. Remember that scene? I feel like that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, I'm going to go pick a fight with this guy. He's invited me to his house, but I'm going to pick a fight. 
So then we read in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. A later rabbinic tradition likens eating bread without previously washing the hands to having intercourse with a harlot. They are so intense, aren't they? So no wonder he's astonished. Jesus might as well have done the thing that I just read in front of him. Wow, he didn't wash his hands. So so Jesus, he lays into him. He, He responds with a general indictment. And then follows that up with three specific examples in which he pronounces woes on the Pharisees. So let's look at this first general indictment, verses 39 through 40. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? We've all experienced going to unload the dishwasher or get a clean dish out of there we need that bowl of cereal you grab the bowl so clean and shiny on the outside you flip it oh last night's spaghetti totally stuck to it still this bowl is dirty and filthy and worthless I'm putting it back I should put it in the sink with hot water I know but I just (laughs) (laughs) it's worthless to use I know that I'll try a bit I'll try harder next time And that's what Jesus is saying these Pharisees are like. On the outside, they look clean. They look holy. But on the inside, they're filthy. He says they're full of greed and wickedness. And then he calls them fools. This is, amazing. This is not my insight, but I love this insight from a scholar. He's, Jesus, when he's calling them fools, most likely isn't dissing their intellect, but calling to mind Psalm 14, verse 1. What does that say? The fool says in his heart there's no God. They are corrupt They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. He is saying these Pharisees live as if if there is no God. That's why they're fools. They're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. They forget that God has made the inside as well as the outside. And then he says in verse 41, But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I believe this is Jesus' main indictment of the Pharisees. Jesus argues that the Pharisees have things upside down, focusing on outside cleanliness and holiness, but not inward godliness and holiness. And then these three woes he is about to pronounce are evidence that they are indeed unholy on the inside. True holiness, the holiness God is seeking, starts within. It starts in the heart and flows out to our actions. True holiness is not outward actions only without a heart of love for God and love for neighbor. So then we're going to see Jesus pronounce these woes on the Pharisees in a little bit, woes on the lawyers. I'll remind you, we've done it twice so far through Luke, but the word woe is an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. I read this week a couple more nuances. One pastor says this, The woe is akin to a curse that warns against catastrophe, which looms should the current behavior be continued. And one other said, I thought this was interesting, Woe is an expression, though, of regret and not vindictiveness. There's still regret. Even as angry as he is, there's regret. You're living in the wrong way. 
And we see later, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you weren't willing. So let's look at each of these three woes. The first is is another example. The Pharisees doing small outward actions without inward godliness. Look at verse 42 with me. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They tithe the smallest things and yet neglect the biggest things. They neglected justice, which I think could be a synonym for love of neighbor and love of God. How backwards and upside down could they have been? I read somewhere else that, that they, they didn't even really have to tithe rue. Part of the Mishnah said, rue is too small of a garden herb, you don't have to tithe it. And yet they're doing this tiny thing above and beyond the law, and they're not doing the big things. But Jesus doesn't tell them to stop tithing. He tells them they should do the big things within and continue to tithe. Let's pause there for a moment and look in the mirror in his first general indictment and his first woe. What about us? What about you? How do we live like the Pharisees? Doing the small externals without internal love and devotion. How would we live in ways that portray our understanding of holiness merely as outward actions? Is your spiritual life just a a to-do list to check off? Come to church, check. Pray, check. That's why I wanted to start with the prayer when I reminded us that we're talking to the triune God. Because I know I'm guilty of that. He Even here from the platform at dinner with my family. Sometimes I'm just praying and realize like, oh, I didn't even like stop, take a breath, remember who I'm talking to. This is just like a rote tradition I'm doing. What about in the way that we read the Bible? Is there no devotion behind it? No heart? What about just in general in life? We know the right things to say, the right things to do, but inside we're full of anger, jealousy, lust, covetousness, greed. What about in the way that we love God? By loving our spouses. Like, sure, honey, I'll mow the lawn for you. Or I'll do something big, I'll I'll work a job. You can stay home, I'll work really hard, I'll bring in the money. I'll do everything the counselor is telling us to do. I'll check all the boxes. But I'm not going to confess my sin to you or acknowledge the way I've been treating you. I'm not going to lay my life down for you. You can have all of this and this, but you're not coming here. I'm not treating you from here. There's a little Pharisee in all of our hearts, and we can slay him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the second woe, verse 43. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they love the prestige and honor that came with their office. The most important seats in the synagogues were actually up front facing the congregation. And an example of a greeting that a a Pharisee would have gotten would have been something like this. I didn't make this up, but I thought this was good. Ah, Rabbi Eliezer, glorious doctor of the Torah, repository of Solomonic epigrams, son of Amos, son of Saul. And then my 
edition, man of mans, a legend among men, the beast of men. They loved those greetings. They lived for them. And how are we like that? How are we committed to being seen as successful or spiritually successful? How does our desire for prestige and honor manifest itself? I have two friends, both separate. They don't know each other. Both told me a really embarrassing fact. I'm going to throw them under the bus right now. I'm not going to share their names. These two friends told me, maybe I'll just save it for one because he's my guy friend. The other one is one of our mutual female friends. But he said, Chad, I have to tell you something. This was a while ago, but we're talking about this principle. He said, I treat my Bible really bad. Like I'll get home from church or from my Bible study and he was a baseball pitcher for Kansas State and he would chuck his Bible across the room. Like, why do you do that? He's like, I throw it in my backpack. Like, I see your little special. Have you guys seen my box that I keep my Bible in? Yeah, he makes fun of me for my box. I protect it. He throws it in his backpack. I'm like, why do you do that? He's like, so it looks more worn out. So people think I'm like, so when I'm at church and I'm at the Bible study, they're like, dang, dude, your Bible's like falling apart. You must be in it all the time. God bless him. He repented. He shared that with me. I do things like that too. I mean, I think this is especially a danger for for men like me who are right here, to be honest. I I pray that that God would free me from the fear of man, that that my main motivation here wouldn't be to, to impress or to be eloquent, but just to be God's servant, to be God's mouthpiece. You can pray for me and everyone who preaches in this church and every preacher that God would free them from that because that's a real temptation. That was off notes, so where am I now? <laughs> there are probably even more subtle ways that we do this. We may be living the social media fallacy, that way of living where we make our lives look successful and spiritually healthy, but we're not on the inside. Friends, we don't need to be afraid of being known. We can assume the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. We can trust that they won't look down on us because we're struggling. We, can, we should share those struggles. We, we can be who we are in here and acknowledge that. The final woe is in verse 44 to the Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Walking on a grave would make a, an Israelite, a, a Jewish person, person ceremonially unclean. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees are like unmarked graves, looking normal from the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones. Jesus is saying that they're unclean and therefore unholy, and that people who come into contact with them become unclean as well, in the same way they would if they walked over an unmarked grave. That's why we see him talking about whitewashing graves so people can know where they are and go around them. That is incredibly offensive, obviously, to the Pharisees. And Jesus has a similar indictment for the lawyers. He's saying that the ministry of the Pharisees is a ministry of death. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, 15 to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The point of this section is that true holiness starts within. One must be holy on the inside to be holy on the outside. And as Jesus pronounces the woes on these Pharisees, a lawyer speaks up. 
he probably regretted it. And he tries to shame Jesus for his apparent arrogance. But Jesus has some words for him as well. And his main point for the, for the lawyers is that point number two, true holiness is according to the wisdom of God. Verses 45 through 54. So Jesus has three woes for the lawyers as well. It's, it's so socially awkward, isn't it? We can read into that. Woe to you. Pharisees, woe to you, the heck with you, the heck with you. And the lawyer's like, hey man, you're offending us too. And he's like, well, the heck with you too. Let me tell you what I think about you. So let's read the first couple, verse 45 and 46. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This first woe has to do with all the oral traditions that they have heaped upon Israel. The extra 6,000 that they say you have to obey. Obedience to all of their additional commands had become an overwhelming burden. 6,000 additional commands are hard to remember, let alone to obey. And God's law, his testimonies, were meant to be a joy for his people. Read Psalm 119. And see what a joy the law of God is meant to be for his people. I delight in your testimonies more than gold and silver, Lord. But the lawyers had ruined this. They they heaped burdens on people. And they didn't help the people bear them at all. How do we do the same thing? To ourselves and to each other. As a young Christian, I remember feeling really guilty if I didn't have a quiet time in the morning. I had placed this extra biblical tradition on myself. Like I, if I don't spend the first hour of the day in prayer and in the word, God is really upset with me. And if I have a horrible day and something bad happens, it's because he's punishing me because I didn't have a quiet time. What a bummer, Chad. What an extra biblical law. I mean, and quiet times are great, right? I love having time in the morning with the Lord. It's a good thing. But it's not meant to be a law that if we don't do it, we feel guilty. As I mentioned earlier, what about in the way people dress? Do we have extra biblical requirement or a tradition about the way Christians dress? What about alcohol? That's a big one. I know there's some people in here we call teetotalers. You don't drink alcohol. That's awesome. That's okay. Some people do. Now, I agree. Drunkenness is sin. We should not get drunk. Do not get drunk if you're a Christian. Repent if you do. But do we put that tradition on other people? What about our order of worship here at the church or the songs we sing? We all need to be careful not to put our traditions on the same level of Scripture and definitely not to put our traditions onto our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to continue to be people of the book, allowing the book to dictate our practice and therefore our holiness. If I can just do a shameless plug again, if, if I was king for a day, required reading at this church would be a book called Conscience. I've mentioned it before from here. I think we're buying it. It might be in the bookstall in the next few months. Conscience by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. We're coming into an election year, y'all. Let's do really well. Let's, let's remember that God has given each of us a different conscience in some ways. There are essentials, but then we have different consciences. And we can love people who differ. 
And we cannot put the, that conscience or that tradition on each other. So, as I said, we need to continue to be people of the book. Let, let this book dictate our holiness and our traditions and our consciences. We should also be aware of denominations and branches of Christianity that elevate tradition to be with equal footing with Scripture. We need to be really careful about that. I think you all probably know that. As Protestants, we believe that, that God's Word alone is the authority. We can learn from tradition. I'm not saying throw tradition out. Sometimes it's good and helpful, but it's never equal to or above God's Word. The next woe we see is verses 47 through 51. He says this, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What Jesus is saying here is that like the religious leaders before them, the Pharisees too are guilty of killing the prophets and that they build their tombs. Jesus is saying that in, in doing that, they're consenting to the deeds of their fathers who killed the prophets. God sent prophets to Israel since the beginning, and apostles would come during Jesus' ministry with the twelve, and after Jesus ascended, the twelve continued on. Yet the leaders of Israel would kill them. From the murder of Abel in Genesis 4 to the murder of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, Israel has murdered the prophets sent to her. And a really fun Bible nerd fact is, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles is the last book of their Old Testament. So he's saying from beginning to end, from Abel to Zechariah, from the whole Old Testament, Israel's leaders have killed the prophets. And the Pharisees and the lawyers' rejection and murder of Jesus would be the climax of Israel's rejection of God. And therefore the charge would be great. The final woe for the lawyers is in verse 52. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Here's what he's saying. There's only one layer of sugar that he can remove from that sentence. And if you did, here's what it would be. You guys are false teachers headed for hell and bringing your converts with you. Sheesh. Their teachings do not lead to life, holiness, or entrance into the kingdom of God. Soft words aren't needed in these scenarios. We should th think about false teaching and teachers with the weight with which they deserve. Not that we have a right to be hateful and malicious, but speaking the truth in love, we should tell false teachers the true way to heaven and encourage them to repent and believe. This happened four days ago with the Mormons at my door, three of them, on my wife alone. So I went out, and I, was, I, I, I had to take some breaths and some prayer, because I was like, man, three on one. But it, it wasn't spiritual yet. They were being nice. 
And maybe I was a little harsh. We can talk about that. We've told Dan and Nancy. But the truth is, I, I told them. It was hard. It was kind of scary. But I said, hey, guys, I think your theology is really bad. I don't think I'm going to see you in heaven. I want you guys to know that Jesus Christ is enough. It's not Jesus plus Joseph Smith plus the Book of Mormon plus your works. That is a false gospel, and I'm concerned for your souls. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone. Believe that the Bible alone is holy and infallible and inerrant. And, and join me feasting in the house of Zion. They said, oh, we got to go. We have another appointment. Great talking to you. I commend you guys to, to pray and be bold. Maybe I could have been a little bit more loving, but life and death is on the line when they come knocking at your door. And for the people, my heart was going out because they are canvassing our neighborhood right now. I've been seeing them every day, and I'm praying for the overlooked neighborhood and severance because they're everywhere. I'm like, Lord, protect my neighbors from this false teaching. This falls on all of us, but heavily on pastors. We must and we will give people the holy word of God. We must keep the word, which is the key of knowledge, before you all and before our families and before ourselves. This is why we're so passionate about expository preaching at this church. And I'm so encouraged because so many of the connect lunches where new people come, they say, we just love the preaching. We love hearing from books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. There's so many different ministry philosophies in the world and in our country, and they're not all, there's some really good ones. You know, we're not the only ones who do chicken right here, but I think we do chicken really right here. You, you, you know that there are, there are some ministry philosophies and their sermons, we would say, as, as nerdy pastors and preachers, it's a TED Talk with a Bible verse. You've probably heard them. Five ways to live an awesome life, and 99% of it is just like self-help and then one quick Bible verse. You know, there, there's diving board sermons. I'm, I'm going to jump off the text into whatever I want to talk about. I read it at the beginning, but then we never come back to it. There's hobby horse preaching. I hope you guys won't get too mad at me at this one, but there's, there's longhorn preaching. A point here and a point there and a lot of bull in between. I hope I'm not in trouble. True holiness is according to God's word and God's word alone. That's why we're so passionate about it here. That's why I know you Christians in here are so passionate about it. This is where we we seek to know God, we know God, we know what holiness is and how to live it out. The lawyer's additions were burdens that could not lead to holiness or salvation. And this is the context in which Jesus says, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. They're sick of these 6,000 extra laws that they're trying to gain holiness by. He says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So after all these woes to the lawyers, he leaves. In verse 53, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't repent and believe. They continue in their opposition of him, and they're seeking to trap him and to catch him. And then we tur- he turns, the scene changes, he turns to his disciples and we see that true holiness doesn't fear being inside out. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. 
So Jesus turns to his disciples and he warns them of the danger of the Pharisees. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, which can be a synonym for yeast, would be put in dough and it would spread through the whole lump. And interestingly, hypocrisy is related to the word for actor. And Jesus warns his disciples that the hypocrisies of the Pharisees, these actings of the Pharisees, would spread through all of those who follow them in their teachings. And then he says in verses 2 and 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. True holiness knows that everything will be revealed someday. What is on the inside or said in secret will be brought out. It will be brought inside out. Every motivation, every vain, glorious attempt to usurp worship, every quiet word said will be brought to the light. The Pharisees and every other hypocrite will be revealed. Sometimes God chooses to reveal it in this life. We see people get exposed for who and what they are. But he will certainly do it on judgment day for everyone. There are no secrets with God. And those who live in true holiness live quorum Deo, which is Latin for before the face of God or before the presence of God. The truth is, though, brothers and sisters, that none of us live out our faith perfectly. We all act like hypocrites someday, some days. And that's why we treasure Jesus, isn't it? That's why we love his work for us. On the last day when our deeds are brought to light, there will be some moments of hypocrisy in our stories. And the enemy will say, see God, they're a hypocrite. And God may respond with something like, you're right. They acted hypocritically at times and I punished their sins on my son, Jesus Christ. So they're forgiven and they're coming with me to feast in the house of Zion. So we true, we... Don't have to fear being inside out. True holiness does not have to fear being inside out. We're going to see that even more next week as Stephen preaches the next text. Our nature has been changed. We are new creatures. We will occasionally act out of line with our beliefs, but I believe far more often we will act in line with it. Not perfectly, but we will act in line with it. Let me address those of you in here who might be with us this morning that aren't Christians, and one of your main frustrations with the church and Christianity is this. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. First of all, I'm sorry that that's your perspective, but I want to acknowledge that you're not totally wrong. There are a lot of hypocrites who claim the name of Jesus It seems like, I don't know, I'm crazy, but it seems like a lot of the public Christians, a lot of us are questioning, like, is that person really a Christian? A lot of the times we're saying, probably not. If you you have bones to pick with the televangelists, you're right. If you think it's weird that a pastor who's called to serve God and his people has a huge mansion, a private jet, and wears thousands of dollars of clothes, you're right. But I would just beg you not not to judge Jesus Christ based off of the hypocrites. And I believe in this church, you're not really going to find any true hypocrites. But I I want you to know, like I just said, that that none of us is perfect. 
And the message of Christianity isn't, I'm good, you be good. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's why we come every Sunday to worship Jesus Christ for forgiving us of our hypocrisy. So if that's you, I I hope you'll consider the things that I'm saying. Brothers and sisters, true holiness starts in the heart. It's according to God's word, and it doesn't fear being inside out. This holiness is given to us through the work of our good shepherd, who we see in action in this passage. Every shepherd had two tools, a rod and a staff. His rod was to beat or kill the predators, the wolves. And his staff with the hook on the end was to corral the wandering sheep. And we see our good shepherd using both tools in this passage. He uses his rod on the Pharisees and the lawyers and his staff on the disciples and us. But his greatest tool and his greatest work was done on the cross where he died for us forgave us of our hypocrisy, gave us the Holy Spirit who causes holiness to flow from our hearts. By his Spirit, he has washed the inside of our cups. So, dear saints, give as alms those things that are within and everything will be clean for you. I want to offer a quick caveat that Even as regenerate, born-again Christians, our our acts of obedience aren't always going to flow from that heart of devotion and love for God. And I'm not saying, well, if if it's not like all out for the Lord, don't do it. I think we should still obey the Lord. And I've noticed if I wake up in the morning and I really didn't want to, I wanted to press snooze, but I wake up and I get in the word and I pray and I, I start with no devotion, no heart. I'm tired. I wish I could sleep for another hour. The Lord honors that. Most times... And I feel my heart soften, and I feel the calluses peeled away again. I I just commend to you guys, it's not always going to be this, yes, Lord, I'm so in love with you, I can't wait to obey you, but I think we still should obey him. And often we experience blessing in that obedience. And we can repent of the ways that we've attempted external reform and obedience without a heart of love for God. I want to end with this. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's actually not even a Christian quote, but it makes a powerful point. He says this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And friends, that's what God has done for us in Christ. He hasn't come to us and said, be holy, here's your tasks, do this and do that. He's come to you in Christ, a sinner, saved you, cleaned the inside of your cup, given you the Holy Spirit, and given you you this longing to live for him and to know him and to love him. The holiness is flowing from your heart and you want to be with God. You want to live for his glory. Not perfectly, you never will, but it's there. And that's what he's done for us. He's given us that holiness that makes us long for him and it flows out into our actions. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We pray, Lord, that by the Spirit in us, we would continue to experience our changed hearts and what you've done for us in Christ. 
and that we would pursue holiness that, that is within us and would flow out. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us the ways that we add tradition to be with equal authority with your word and help us turn from that and just to learn the ways of holiness from your word. And we know, Lord, that when we do those things, we, we don't have to fear being exposed. We know our enemy will, will tell us that we're condemned, but we know there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So we praise you, Father, for another day, another Sunday morning. We praise you for your word that is a mirror to our hearts. We pray that by the power of the Spirit in us, you would help us kill the Pharisee in all of our hearts. We love you, praise you, pray in the name of King Jesus, amen.